0: Father God, thank you again for an opportunity to be in this space. Well, we pray that as we approach your word here in a minute, um, that you speak to us through it, that we can hear the words that you have for each of us this morning. Amen. All right. This morning, we've moved to Genesis 11. And this morning, I want to talk about technology for a little bit. Um, you see, technology has become an integral part of our daily lives, right? Shaping the way we communicate, work, interact, and interact with the world, from smartphones to social media, From e-commerce to automation, technology has revolutionized the way we do things. It's enabled us to achieve tasks that were previously considered impossible and has brought about significant improvements in various sectors. As technology continues to evolve and advance, it's important to explore its role in society and the impact it has on our daily lives. It's become so advanced that actually, uh, instead of writing the opening paragraph to my sermon today, I just asked ChatGPT to do it and that's what it wrote. That's pretty good, right? See, I don't, I'm don't. getting to the point where I almost don't even have to write them anymore. I just say, please write me a sermon, and it will. Uh, no, that actually, the first little bit there was entirely written by an AI. How many of you have heard of ChatGPT before? Some of you have. Some of you haven't. If you don't know what that is, it's a chatbot. Uh, it's uh, an, an, uh, an AI chatbot that will... Uh, Write like a human, sort of, right? So it can gather stuff from all of the internet and can write you something, whatever prompt you give it. I literally said, write me to an an intro to a sermon on technology, and that's what happened, right? So it'll come and take all of those things, and it surprisingly sounds human, right? (laughs) Our robot overlords are only one step away, right? I actually wasn't concerned until my my Alexa started criticizing my eating habits, right? Another donut, Brent? Like... It was either that or it was Micah checking up on my Peloton, right? That's, that's real. He does that. He gives me texts. Hey, it's only been no times this week. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because we've actually been moving through the book of Genesis and have made it to Genesis 11. And it's going to matter for, for the story we look at today. Let's just read the whole thing and then we'll go back and see what we can pull out of it. So if you have a Bible, we're in Genesis 11 today, uh, starting at verse 1 which says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. And the Lord said, as, <clears throat> as, if, if, as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So if you're new to this series or new to Harbor Life, we've been working through Genesis for the year of 2023. And we, and we each week acknowledge a few things. First, we've been acknowledging regularly that the beginning of Genesis is strange, right? It just is. We, we, we have talking snakes. We have marks on foreheads. We literally just skipped the Nephilim, which I was surprised more of you didn't ask me about. We have floods, and now we're to this place in which we're building a tower and God decides to scramble language. Uh, it's, they're strange stories. My hope is that as we've worked through these things, you've been able to walk away with a little more uh, than just the fact that it's weird, right? Hopefully you've been able to see some of the themes that run through the beginning of Genesis is beautifully layered with so many different themes running through it uh, in, in all of these places. There are themes on top of themes on top of themes. I said it a a couple weeks ago. Truthfully, I think we could preach the beginning of Genesis 1-11 through again, maybe twice, with entirely different sermons, and I think they would be just as true to the text as the ones we've already done, uh, because we could just take different angles in each of those spaces. And that's true again today. This story here has a number of different angles that we could come at it from. One of them, we could just talk about Babylon itself, the city of Babylon. There's a point being made here about these big foreign cities. uh, The book of Genesis was written first, given first to a group of freed slaves. Uh, Most people agree that the first people that would have read the book of Genesis were the people that had come out of Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, The stories obviously predate that, but the actual written account... And so in that particular space, even the word of the name of the city is supposed to point us right to Babylon, right? They called it Babel, which is the root of Babylon. But we're actually going to leave that one alone today because I want to focus on two other themes that work together in this story. The first we already have set up, it's technology. It's in its relationship to a theme that we've seen running through each story we've looked at so far which is the desire that we have to be the gods of our own lives. Back when we were looking at Genesis 3, we realized that the temptation this serpent gives to Eve is that. She says to him, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's the temptation for Eve saying, yeah, I can be like God. If I knew good and evil, I would be superior to the way I am now, and I would be like God. And we've seen throughout the story that humans continually are trying to recapture the ability to be the gods of their own lives. We kicked off last week and said it starts with this series of what-if statements. Sure, we couldn't be the gods of our own lives after the fall in the garden, but what if? what if God warned us right before we were about to sin, which is what happens with Cain? And Cain fails. But what if we get another chance, which also happens with Cain and he fails? But what if we experienced all of the hardships of sin and then got a fresh restart? That's the story of Noah. And now today, but what if we had better tools? Surely then we could, we could master this God of our own life thing. So let's, let's actually dive into the story and see how that theme plays through this particular one. Begins here, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. This is one of those little passages that's easy to read over quickly and not see how it's tied to the rest of the book of Genesis, but it is. We've seen each week, too, that, that as we keep going through these stories, it keeps pointing us back to the ones that came before. Where we see these themes that call back to things we've already seen. We see Noah, and then after Uh, In Genesis 8, when Noah is floating on the water, we actually recreate the days of creation. So we see Genesis 8 ties us back to Genesis 1. We saw in the Cain and Abel, then we see in Noah's story after the flood, the the repeat of the Cain and Abel story. And this one is calling us back to themes we've already seen in the Bible as well. See, the story starts with everyone speaking the same language. They're united. They're together. And so the question then we have then is, what are they going to do with that unity with that ability they have to communicate and understand each other. Well, right away at the beginning of this story, it tells us they're going to move east. Now, my guess is for many of you, that was just a line that doesn't even register, and I get that. It wouldn't have for me either. But if we're paying close attention to the stories that we've already seen, that's a trigger that's going to tell us what's going to come next in the story. We, rec- we as we've been reading slowly through these passages, we recognize that that statement is, 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 a, um, is pointing us towards the theme that says right away uh, that something bad is coming. Why? Because this isn't the first time that East has shown up in the first 11 chapters. The first time we see it is, is in Genesis 3, verse 23. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword and flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. East is where you can't get back in in this case. Or in the story of Cain. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Each time humanity is moving away from God in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, they're always going east. So this story is tipping us off right away that when we ask the question, what are these people going to do with their shared unity and understanding of each other, by saying they're going to move eastward is immediately triggering us to go, uh-oh, because they're not moving towards God, it's very clear that they're moving away from him. So let's see where it goes. A group of people head east and they settle and they say to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that they, we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Now, if you're like me, and for a long time in my life, this was a tricky passage for me because that, that goal that they say they're trying to do doesn't sound all that bad. Hey, we're together now and we want to stay together, we don't want to be spread about. So let's build a city so we don't have to leave each other, which seems like something we'd want, right? Why would God want to stop that? And that's what we're hoping we can break down for a bit this morning. Because what we have in this passage, what it's tra- what, what, something that it's trying to point us towards, is, is it's triggering a, a technological revolution. Now, we're not talking iPhones, uh, but we're talking bricks, which I get for many of you are like, Okay. I thought we were going to do something cool, just bricks. But uh, it really was. Uh, To the modern world, the brick doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But to a world without them, it really, really was. Before the invention of the bricks, humans built their structures out of stone, which is we even have in this passage here, which has its limitations. You had one of two options if you're going to build with stone. Either you have to cut massive blocks out of stone that exists, which is not an easy process. It's very labor intensive. It's also very difficult to move those stones once you've cut them. Uh, though, that We see that kind of building in something like the pyramids, right? Where we know it had to be built with massive amounts of slave labor. Because the workload and intensity of building with with brick, or not with bricks, with stone that way is just incredibly difficult. You either have to shape every single one of your stones out of an existing stone and then transport it to where it has to go. That's tough. Or you just needed to take the stones that you had and stack them on top of each other. If you've ever tried to build a stone wall, you recognize there's limitations to that too because stones aren't universally shaped. Right? They're all different sizes. And so you do your best to fill all the gaps. You put mud in between and you can only go so high, right? There's, they're, they're, you're severely limited in the, in the kinds of buildings you can build with just stone. And so bricks changed the game. Bricks are easily transportable. They're relatively easy to make. And you can stack them on top of each other to make huge buildings relative to the ones you could build before. If you've ever toured the ruins of any ancient city, there, all, there always are mo- the majority of the buildings and most of the in most spaces are made out of bricks. There are many historians who would argue that the brick inaugurated civilization as we understand it today. The brick makes cities possible. You can now build multiple habitats for multiple people for relatively low labor costs and expense. which leads us to the cross point in this story. We started by wondering how these people would use the gift of common language. Well, we see they developed technology. Was that bad? No. But how will they use that tech is the next question. You see, every time humanity makes a technological advancement, we're faced with the exact same question. We invent the bow and arrow which makes getting food a whole lot easier. In a society of hunter-gatherers, the ability to shoot from far away is a huge advantage, right? The bow was a technological advancement that could greatly enhance humanity. It also makes it a whole heck of a lot easier to shoot each other. We figure out how to manipulate metal. Which makes tools way better. We can now we do a lot of things a lot simpler with metal tools instead of old sticks or stones. But it also makes swords stronger too, doesn't it? We invent the wheel, which helps move food and supplies around, but also works really well as a war chariot. Writing produces poetry and declares war. Currency makes trade simpler and feeds greed. We split the atom, producing an amazing amount of power and energy and producing the ability to blow up an entire city in a second. It's the same with every single thing. Phones, computers, smart devices, social media. It's all the same. They can be used for amazing goods to move us all as as a society or for horrific and horrible evils. I actually love how Pastor Tim of South Harbor put it. He says, technology is great. It can bring freedom with God, if we're working with God, or, the, or that same invention can be the source of our freedom from God. Which, think about that for a second, is what we've seen as we work through Genesis. Freedom from God is to say, I don't need you, I can be the God of our own life, my own life. And technology produces a stream for us to believe we can do that. So back to bricks then. Bricks, we like we said, have the potential for so much good. We can build these cities for cheap. We can give safe dwellings for people to protect themselves from animals or the environment. What's the downside? Well, we actually can see that really quickly in the Bible itself. If we fast forward to Exodus 1:13, we're already there. So the Israelites are now in Egypt. And it says this. But they were, but the, the more they were oppressed, the more they mulch, the more Israelites, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What we see here is bricks can be used to build shelter to protect more of humanity, which is great, or They can be used to build empires which enslave humanity. It starts small. One brick is great, that leads to two bricks, that leads to more, which slowly, without ever intending to be, we find ourselves then building Babel. We slowly find ourselves slave to the very thing that we thought was going to bring us freedom. Bricks inevitably lead to more bricks. And throughout history, over and over and over again, we've seen that this is the trend. The same tech that can bring freedom with God can be the very thing that we use to try to gain freedom from God. Or in other words, it can, co- it can become the thing that we, be- that we believe will allow us to function without God. Or in other words, again, it can become the thing that we believe will allow us to be the God of our own lives. which is what we see in this story too. It's the idea that's being expressed when the people who are building the city of Babel say, let's go and build the city to make a name for ourselves so that our, my name supersedes God's name, that we'll be important, that will we'll show that we're gods of men. When we decide that we can use whatever thing that we have been given to increase our own name Chaos tends to ensue. I spent some time this week just wrestling with what it looks like, uh, like how much of the technology that we all take for granted was actually created for war. Now, there is a varying percentages on what that actually looks like, like how many of the things that we use can actually be created for war. But some estimate as high as 75% of most of the things we use were originally built to kill each other. A lot of our modern inventions came that way. The microwave is one. We built the microwave because we wanted to boil people, right? Can aim it at somebody. Doesn't work very well for that. So we didn't use it for that. But then we thought, but it does work really well on potatoes. So let's change the function, right? Velcro is from war. So, much, uh, so, many, so many different things that we created were to figure out better ways to either support people killing each other or kill people faster. When we use technology to advance ourselves, chaos, te- chaos tends to ensue. If we don't submit our things to God, they have this tendency to slowly over time begin to own us. Yeah? Something that can start really great can end up going down a path that we don't want it to really, really quickly. Now my guess is, each of us, to one degree or another, have something in our lives that own us a little bit. Whether it's technology, or like Micah shared, even opinions about ourselves can do the same thing if we don't submit them to God. I do. I have to admit it. I, I've said it here, and I, Luigi and I were talking about it earlier this week too, that every once in a while uh, I write a sermon and unfortunately I have to write it to myself. And I hate that. Today's one of those days. Is I have things that, I, that feel like that for me as well. I actually cleaned my pocket out, but imagine I had my phone in my pocket. I, put it, I took it out and put it back there, which is actually good. That means I'm growing. Um, but but it's a, that's one of the struggles that I have. I, have a hard to, uh, that's, it, I struggle at times to put it down, my phone. Right, the phantom buzz, right? I, I've moved into that space. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We were like, oh, no, nothing happened. It just felt like it. Like your leg weirdly buzzes for no reason. It happened slowly over time, right? One brick led to another brick, which led to another brick. And all of a sudden, I realized that I, even when there's nothing to do, I won't pull it out to want to check it. Is anyone else there with me? I can't be the only one, right? It's just something that started to to. to and I realized wasting way more time with it than I wanted. And um, I appreciate that Jen helped me point that out for me, right? That's something that we have to grow. No, and, it, and it is. It's something I have to be better at. But I think that whether it's that for you or whatever it might be, that's how it works, right? We start with these little things that, gain, that get a little hook in us. It might even be for a good reason. And then if we don't keep an eye on them, they, send, they tend to cascade out of control. We start posting online to share the fun things that are happening in our lives, which is great. Social media can connect us to people we don't get to see often. There are are people that I only know what's happening in their lives because they post about their kids on Facebook, great. Uh, For you kids who don't know what Facebook is, it was the thing us old people use now, right? (laughs) But we start there, and then we start getting a few likes, and it feels good, so we post more often. Until all of a sudden we feel that our value is associated with how many people see our things and give us some affirmation around it. Over and over and over again, people can fall into, some, into that space. Your worth is connected to how many likes you get or how many people give you that affirmation. And actually, I, Micah's story this morning fits so perfectly into that idea, right? He shared how that works in his story. But I know, right? It's just it's providential or, or paying you. Um, But it's so many other things as well. It starts without going out to have a beer with your buddies, which is great. You can have a great time with that. I love doing that. Or then all of a sudden, though, that's the, the, earlier and earlier and earlier in the day until you feel like this thing starts to own you. Or you maybe you start by just talking to that coworker who understands something about you your spouse doesn't, which actually can be cathartic until you just seek to speak speak with them over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a place you never meant to be. So many different places we could go with that. It's a progression so many of us have fallen victim to in one way or another. We're drawn into this good thing, and then it's twisted. Again, like Micah shared this morning. It's actually a theme we see run through Scripture over and over again as well. The very first psalm, Psalm 1, begins this way. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his on his law day and night. They are like a tree planted on the, by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. The progression we see in this psalm is exactly what we've been talking about. Blessed are those who do not walk. So we have this walking, right? We're moving into this space. And then what do we do? We stop. We stand. And, we, and, we're, and we're, we're rounded a little more than we used to be before. That doesn't even inherently mean it's bad yet. But then what do we finally do? We sit. Meaning we're stationary in it, right? It's this progression that we have going through how this thing works over and over again. We start by walking until we stop to stand until finally we become comfortable in it. I don't know what your thing is, but my guess is that's universally relatable in one way or another. Now, I don't bring this up to shame anyone, right? I admit it, like I said, I've fallen into that same trap. It's easy to live an unreflected life around these things. I get some pleasure from being on my phone. And at the same time, when I overuse it, I feel like crap. And I think a lot of us have been there, right? Where you realize, I just burned three hours on this thing and my brain doesn't even feel right. But there are times where I feel like I can't help myself. So the first thing I want to say is if you're in something like that, something that you feel like has the potential to be destructive in your life, don't ignore it. It doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't just magically stop. It begins to own you. You can't just flirt with it. At the same time, I also want to say that as heavy as that can feel, there's hope. There is because we've seen it run through the first few chapters of Genesis and we continue to see it throughout the rest of the Bible over and over and over again as we continually declare, I think I can be the God of my own life. God says, you can't. And you'll experience the fallout of that. But when you do, I will be there to pick you back up. Over and over and over and over and over again that happens in Scripture. It literally is the theme of the gospel. You can't be the God of your own life. You will fail. It will hurt. And when you do, I'll be there. Pick your spot. It's the story of Judges. It's the story of israel it's the story of jesus it's the story of the church that you are going to experience these hardships that cause you pain and when you do god will be there to pick you back up and we can try to do better later it's the beautiful story of the gospel so then if these things will own us if we don't do something about them and god desires to be there to pick us up when we fall what do we actually do you see, there's a myth that has arisen in the Christian church, one that I think I've found that has been particularly destruct- destructive um, um, to, to this, the process we're talking about over the years. The myth is that once you found Jesus, your life's now great. Did it, have any of you ever believed that at one point in time or another? You, no one's going to raise their hand, but I think you have. Thanks, Shane. Let's be honest. I agree. It, it Actually, it's, it's my biggest hang-up with Christian movies, is that I'm going through all this stuff, and then I find Jesus, and now it's great. Now, two things. One, I firmly believe that miracles exist. I really do. That there, that we can, that there are times in which God will actually do those things in a, in a flash. But I think for the majority of us, in our experience, it's a slow work of processing and sanctification. It's a slow work of working those things out. Jesus will set you free, but he's not a magical pill that just uh, fixes everything. Far more often, the path to restoration is longer. And we've actually already seen it in the stories we've looked at in Genesis. If you were with us when we talked about Cain, Cain kills Abel. And then what does God tell Cain to do? He says, walk in your brother's shoes. Abel was a shepherd. Go be a shepherd too to see if you can relate with him. You're lo- the long process of restoration. Same is true with Abraham though, which we'll look at next. I need you to follow me to a land I will show you. The process of working out the stuff is gonna come over this long period of time with walking with God. Or King David, which, we'll, which you see in the, later in scripture. You're gonna be king, but later. And so we're going to have to walk through these hard things first. It's true with the disciples. We see it in Peter's journey. We see it in Paul's journey for sure. Right? Long-discipled pruning to work these things out of our lives. Constantly, as the scripture puts it, killing the parts of ourselves that are hurting us. That image, by the way, is, is, for me, it's easiest to wrap around like the idea of cancer. That there's something growing on me that I need to cut off. I don't kill myself but I kill it, right? Get rid of it. The story encourages us to to take this long discipled path. Now, I wanted to try something a little bit different to close up how we do that this morning. And I've never tried it before, so give me feedback. But one of my favorite pictures of this process comes from one of my favorite books of all time, Uh, Written by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Great Divorce. Has anyone ever read that book before? If you haven't, it's brilliant. It's hard to read sometimes because 1945 English from Britain is different than the way we speak. And so it might take you a little bit to get your head wrapped around that. But because most of you haven't read it before, the general premise of the book is that it opens in hell, um, which is, is portrayed as this kind of like gray town. And there's a bus that goes from hell to heaven. When, when, this, when the spirits in hell go into the heaven, they find it to be a place that is completely unsuitable for them. When they step off the bus, they actually realize they're like phantoms or ghosts. They, in, they don't have substance. And everything else in heaven is so real that it actually hurts them to be on it, right? That they can't even lift a leaf or anything like that. And then what happens is that each of these, each of, we, get, we get the picture of each of these ghosts, these people that are coming up, that God sends someone back to them to meet them, to convince them to stay. And we have some really interesting interactions in why they either want to or don't want to. Now, one of those interactions relates to what we've been talking about this today, I think, in a beautiful way. And I actually just want to close today by reading it to you. It's longer? I get that. But I hope you'll be able to see how some of this imagery plays itself out. So what we have is we go through the, in the book, we go through the eyes of the main character. who can observe these conversations, these other, these real people and these ghosts are having in these other spaces. And so we see this. It says, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard and it was twitching its tail like a a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that, it could ha- that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and my body, too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thank you for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he had to be quiet if we came, which he insisted on doing, and of course, his stuff wouldn't do here. I realized that. But he wouldn't stop so I'll just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I'll kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's so dang embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Like, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I, I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks so much, ever. May I kill it? I, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I should be able to keep him in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. You don't think so? Well, I, I think, I'll think over what you said carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'll, I let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling so great. Uh, it would be silly to do it now. I, I need to be in good health for the operation, some other day perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How could I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. I know I think you think I'm a coward but that isn't it really it isn't I say let me run back to to the bus and get an opinion from my own doctor and I'll come again the first thing in the first moment I can this moment contains all moments why are you torturing me you're jeering at me how can I let you how can I let you tear me to pieces if you wanted to help me why didn't you kill the dang thing without asking me before I knew it would be all over now if you had I cannot kill it against your will it's impossible Do I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you will be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, and I know there's no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? i will be so good. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent, you might say. guess they, say, quite innocent. Do I have your permission, the angel said to the ghost. But I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than alive with this creature. Then may I. Dang and blast you. uh, Go on, can't you? Get it over with. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as which the earth had never heard. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back onto the turf. Ow, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly, then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing brighter ever still, and stronger, and legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if, all my, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller uh, than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to have happened to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed, so far from dying, the creature was still struggling and growing ever bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it, f- it, it changed. Its hind parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between the huge, glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I'd ever seen, silvery white with a mane, of, it, with a mane and tail of gold, it was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, winning and stamping its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees <clears throat> shuddered. The new man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It's no, it nosed his bright body, or his bright body horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been liquid love and brightness. One can't distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In a joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back, turning his in his seat. He waved a farewell and nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew what was happening. They were they were riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but they already they were like a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps and quicker at every moment till near the brim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. I just think that's a beautiful representation of what we've been talking about today this lizard sits on the guy's shoulder he hates the thing and also weirdly loves it at the same time which is what so many of us struggle I hate that I sometimes don't feel like I put down my phone and at the same time I love it and I don't want to be without it the angel comes to him and says you know there's a misery to this thing would you like me to kill it He says, if you lean in, you're going to kill me. And that's the thing that's so hard with so many of us as we're trying to wrestle with what our sin looks like in our lives. There's hope, but it's not easy. It hurts sometimes to root those things out that are holding us back. But the message of the gospel is the same as in that story, that God's desire is to lean in and sure it's going to hurt, but on the other side is a life you couldn't imagine. On the other side, the actual thing that was your demise becomes part of your redemption. That's part of what I love about that story some So much, that the fact that the lizard turns into a stallion, which is actually what carries him into a deeper life with God. And that can be true in so many ways, right? We've said that before, that often God redeems the very things that are hurting us so badly. The best person to help a struggling alcoholic is a recovered one. The best person that can work you out of, the, out of, a, out of a difficult marriage is someone who's worked it themselves. The message of the gospel is this, that we cannot ignore the different things that we have in our lives that are holding us back. That's why God talks about sin so often. That's why it's been so heavy in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But it's never meant to be there to make us feel shame or feel less than. It's meant, there, it's meant to be there because God says, I care about you enough that I want to see you like the man on the stallion rather than the person owned by the lizard on your shoulder. And so he invites us to let him in to actually do that work with us and for us. I love that this week comes up on communion week. In just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. When you come to the table, we realize that that's what the cross does. It's an invitation to take those things that own us, that have kept us from flourishing in the way that that God desires for us to, and leave them at the foot of the cross because they've been paid for. Communion is a declaration that, the, that our sin does not own us. It's literally how we start each communion week. Sin is not our master. If we, if we leave it unreflected, it will own us. But because of Christ, it doesn't have to. Compu- communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have some kind of brokenness in our lives. Something that might have started for a good reason that's become twisted that's pulled us away from where we wanted it to take us. And so it's the declaration that we need Christ in our lives, like the man in the story needed the angel. But it's also the declaration that we need each other too. Each of us has fallen short. Each of us have failed in one way or another, and communion is a reminder that failure is not what defines us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin is not our master. And so communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm the acceptance of that gift in our lives. And our table this morning is open to anyone who would like to do that. So, just a few minutes, I'll invite you forward to take a piece of bread and take a take a cup of juice. I want to encourage you to go back to your seat and just reflect on what in your life may need to have its back broken, like the lizard in the story. What's the thing that either hasn't been reflected on and now you realize owns a bigger portion of your life than it ever should have? What's the thing that you both love and hate but know you hate more than you love? I encourage you to think about that and pray over that and realize the freedom that comes through the cross. Because as we come to the table, I want to invite those of you who've chosen to follow Jesus or want to make that choice today for the first time. If you're not that, feel free to just sit in your seat and reflect on what we've talked about. But at the table, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. When we come to the table, we realize our desire is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Since members of one body, we were called to peace and to thankfulness. Now hear these words from Luke twenty-two, fourteen through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take it and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this is the symbol of my body, broken for you. The declaration that you matter and that even in the midst of our failure, God wants to see you restored. So when you eat it, he says, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is the sign of the new covenant. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, in just a minute, we're going to come to the table. God, I want to pray for two things this morning, particularly. One, that you make us aware of the areas in our lives in which our lizards are whispering in our ears. The areas in which we know part of us loves, but most of us hate. Part that we, a thing that we know is holding us back, that's causing us pain and destruction, and yet we're afraid to get rid of and I pray that you open our eyes to be able to see those things in our lives. Second, I pray that in the midst of that space, I just pray the simple prayer that you help us see ourselves through your eyes. And we can see ourselves as, like Micah shared earlier today, as beloved children of God. Sure, we have things that are holding us back, and, but your desire is to see us get rid of those, not so that we feel shame or that our value is down or that our, all of those things, but because you love us so much, you want to see us flourish in the, mo- in the best possible way. And so God, give us eyes to see ourselves like you see us. Like you saw, like the story of the prodigal son in which, you, which both sons you went to to say you're loved, you're valued. Give us the courage to step out of the things that are holding us back, even if it's painful. Give us courage to live the kind of lives you've called us to live. Give us courage to step into the pain and a vision for the life that comes because of it. Amen.